Hitchhikers, welcome back. Thanks for being here on the latest episode of Hitchhiker's Guide to Hyrule. This is your one-stop guide for everything to do with the Legend of Zelda series. Lore, gameplay, our personal stories, you name it. We want to talk about it because Legend of Zelda is the best series in the whole world. Isn't that right, Timmy? I mean, the best video game series, yeah. Oh my, don't, don't even get me started on this. I think we can all agree that Twilight is a superior <laughs> series. I mean... That's not even No, funny. I'm kidding. Obviously, it's Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I won't comment on that. Great series. But, but anyway, the point is, we're here to talk about Legend of Zelda. And we're just regular folks. We've got jobs, we're students, got families. But we all come together to play Zelda because it's such an amazing series. And I'm your host, Tanner Short, here to take you through the mystical land of Hyrule and beyond. And you can tell I've got my co-host and Majora's Mask aficionado, my sister, Timmy Short, who you is bursting at the seams to talk about Majora's Mask. Always. And we can always agree that Majora's Mask is a wonderful the best game. game. Okay, alright, don't even, you two strikes, like, you gotta watch yourself, man. No, I admit, it's a, it's a great game. One of the best. Regardless, that's what we're here to talk about today. We're going to get deep into the lore of this crazy, complex, one-of-a-kind Zelda game. But before we get into that, I hope you guys took the chance last week to listen to our latest episode that Timmy and Maddie did on Animal Crossing New Horizon. I have to say, Timmy, that episode was awesome like it was so hype it got me excited about animal crossing now i've never played it i've never been interested in it i haven't really played any sims games they're just not my cup of tea but after you and maddie went through the game broke it down talked about your favorite aspects of it it got me excited about it i really do want to go pick up a copy or borrow it from someone and play it because it just sounds fun like a great game to play when you got time to kill you want to play the nintendo and just immerse yourself in this fun world. So, thanks for doing that. That was awesome. You guys rock. Oh, heck yeah. And we had so much fun recording it. I kid you not, we probably had an hour and a half, maybe even two hours of content that we recorded. If we ever do a bloopers episode, know that a healthy portion of that's going to be from our Animal Crossing episode. Because we just we had a blast recording it. I, I'm not getting paid to advertise this game, but you should go play it and buy it. Great. Yeah. Yeah, you guys absolutely should. And this is something that we want to make a tradition here on the show, where every few episodes we step away from the Legend of Zelda series and try a different Nintendo franchise or just some standalone game that you can play on a Nintendo console. Because we're all Zelda fans, but we love playing Nintendo games. So if you guys have a game that you want us to talk about, then hit us up on Instagram or Twitter, comment on this video on YouTube. Let us know what you guys want us to talk about, because... We want to talk about what you want to hear about. So connect with us on all those social media platforms at We Talk Media. And stay tuned because in addition to episode updates for Hitchhiker's Guide to Hyrule, we've got a couple other show ideas that we've got in the works. We want to do a show that's focused on just video games, not Nintendo, but console, PC, any video games. And then we want to do another one that's focused on cinema, like movies and TV shows. So stay tuned for that. Now, let's get into the good stuff, Majora's Mask. Okay, so it's no secret that Majora's Mask is my personal favorite Zelda game. 
Not to say I don't love the other ones, but it, Majora's Mask holds a special place in my heart, and I have been so excited for this theories episode because a huge reason that I love Majora's Mask is, oddly enough, that it tends to be a really vague game as far as lore goes because we don't really know what Termina is. We don't really know why the people look like the people from Hyrule. And there's all this really cool architecture and all the parts of Termina. But again, we're not given a whole lot of lore about the land or its people. So because it's really vague, the game lends itself to a lot of theories because it's very open-ended. Even to this day, the creators have said very little about like the people of Akana or the people of Termina. And they've left it really up to fans to interpret and to come up with theories. So as a result... There's lots of theories floating around there. And like Tanner said earlier, we want to talk about some of the really popular theories, whether or not we personally believe them, and then also some of our favorite theories about Majora's Mask, why they're our favorite, and why we think they fit really well with the game. So we thought it made a lot of sense to start off with the most popular Majora's Mask theory, and the one that probably everybody knows, which is the Link is Dead theory from Game Theory. Yeah, so like Timmy said, this is probably the most popular, at least one of the oldest Majora's Mask theories out there. It's a video done by the game theorist in collaboration with Peanut Butter Gamer called Is Link Dead in Majora's Mask? And it's a theory that's based on the fact that Link becomes the hero shade in Twilight Princess. So the hero shade is a Stalfo's spirit. And we learn from Fado, the Kokiri girl in Ocarina of Time, while you're doing the Traitor Link quest... We learn that people who become lost in the Lost Woods will either turn into Stalfos or Skull Kids. And since Link, the Hero Shade, or I should say the Hero of Time from Majora's Mask, since he's the Hero Shade in Twilight Princess who's a Stalfos, this lends to itself to this theory that Link died in the Lost Woods and became a Stalfos. So the theory goes like this. Link dies in the Lost Woods. He perishes on a search for his friend Navi. And he enters Termina, which is this purgatory. It's like his midpoint on his way to the afterlife. It's limbo. And as part of this purgatory, he has to experience the five stages of grief, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, is represented in the five regions of Termina. So he goes through this adventure, experiences this grief at the fact that he has died. And then at the end of it, when he's conquered Majora and he's freed Termina... He's able to find that inner peace and pass on into the next life as a spirit, as the hero shade. So it's a really good video. Everybody should definitely watch it. The research is great. We just don't like that theory a lot because it almost invalidates that adventure that Link takes in Termina by saying that's not a real place. He didn't help real people. It was just a projection of Link's life. And it's also kind of a sad thought that Link dies in Lost Woods, just looking for Navi that becomes lost and passes away. And you know, anyone who knows me knows that I do not subscribe to this idea that the hero of time dies. I mean, I reject the whole defeated timeline branch of Hyrule Historia as a result, wow. even though I have to accept that all those awesome games have to go somewhere in the timeline. I just don't like the idea the Hero of Time dies because he's my favorite Link. So, now, there are some discrepancies with this theory that have kind of debunked it one way or another. So yeah, one of the biggest inconsistencies that people point out and that I think about a lot actually goes back to what you mentioned earlier, Tanner, which is the idea that Fado talks to you about in The Lost Woods, which is that 
when children get lost and die in the lost woods, they become skull kids. But when adults get lost and die in the lost woods, they become Stalfos. So the problem with this theory is that when Link would have died in the lost woods, he would have been a child. So he should have became a skull kid and not the Stalfos as the hero shade in Twilight Princess. So one counter-argument to this idea is that because Link had become an adult and then got sent back to a child's body, he had an adult spirit and therefore that made him a Stalfos, which sort of makes sense except for the fact that, for one, that adult-sized bones had to come from somewhere, and for two, we see the Hero Shade wearing clothes that we've never seen Link wear before because the Hero Shade is wearing a helmet and armor and he has a whole new sword. So what we personally ascribe to is the idea that Termino wasn't Link's purgatory. Link didn't die in the Lost Woods. He came back and he fought wars and wore armor and then maybe went back and died in the Lost Woods, became a Stelphos, and then became the Hero Shade. The other kicker that really debunks this theory is the fact that the Hero Shade, or the Hero of Time, is actually the direct ancestor of the Hero of Twilight. So when you perform the last hidden skill, or you learn the last hidden skill in Twilight Princess, he calls you my child. And Hyrule Historic confirms that this literally means my descendant, not necessarily his son, but my descendant, because on page 118 in the timeline section of Hyrule Historic, it says that the spirit of Link's ancestor, they mean Link from Twilight Princess, the spirit of Link's ancestor, the hero of time, teaches him his secrets. So that means that Link would have had to return to Hyrule, grow up, settle down, have a family, like you said, probably became a warrior for the royal family, and then near the end of his life, he probably decided to just return home to the Lost Woods and live out the rest of his days and let himself pass as a Stalfos spirit until the time that he could find his heir, that he could pass on all of his skills. So it's a good theory all around. There are the inconsistencies that pretty much mean that Link probably didn't die on his way to Termina. Termina's probably not purgatory. But that doesn't mean to say that Termina's a real place. There's actually some pretty crazy evidence that I found in Zelda Encyclopedia that I've been waiting to share. Now, Zelda Encyclopedia doesn't say much about Majora's Mask and Termina, because like we've said in the past, Nintendo's pretty hands-off with trying to get into the exact details of Majora's Mask. But Zelda Encyclopedia does have something very interesting, but I totally glossed over this. But when I was preparing for this episode, I took a deeper look at what it actually said. Okay, this is crazy. So on page 36 of Zelda Encyclopedia, it's talking about Termina and what Termina is. And they have a paragraph called Inside the Mind of the Skull Kid. It says, when a Skull Kid steals Majora's Mask from a traveling mask salesman, the combination of the Skull Kid's burdened heart and the evil magic within Majora's Mask transforms the world into the land of Termina. Termina is a parallel world with its own distinct culture, which is perhaps influenced by Majora's ancient tribe. So this is like crazy. What they're saying is that Termina did not exist until the moment that Skull Kid puts on Majora's Mask. You know, he loots Happy Mask Salesman, steals Majora's Mask, puts it on, and then all of a sudden, the inner turmoil within Skull Kid's heart combines with Majora's Mask's crazy evil power and actually creates this, like, pocket dimension. And it says that this land is also inhabited by races and individuals similar to those found in Hyrule, which were constructed from the Skull Kid's memories and delusions. 
So yeah, you have Skull Kid who creates this world, and then he comes out and lures the Hero of Time into it. So, what do you think of that? That is wild. (laughs) Yeah, it gets even better because the next page goes into the stories that you hear from Granny at the Stockpot Inn. If you've done the side quest where you get the all-night mask, then you can hear those two stories that she tells. One about the Carnival of Time and the history there, and the other one about the Legend of the Four Giants. And so in Cyclopedia, they actually give a little preface to these two stories. And with regard to the Legend of the Four Giants, it says, As the legend continues, the giants are sealed away, and Terminus fated to be destroyed by the swiftly falling moon. Luckily, the Hero of Time appears to defeat Majora's wicked embodiment and break the curse of Majora's mask. While the hero's pure heart allows the world of Termina to momentarily revel in its salvation, as soon as he departs, that world ceases to exist. Having learned his lesson, the Skull Kid makes amends with his friends the Giants, and thus the world in his heart also finds peace and is able to greet the dawn of a new day. It actually said a little bit higher, I skipped it, but it said that the four Giants were spirit friends of the Skull Kid, who, much like Termina itself, were created in a new form by the power of Majora's Mask. So yeah... It goes along with that Link is Dead theory by basically saying that Termina's not a place. It's a figment of both the Skull Kid and the Hero of Time's inner turmoil that then manifests itself in this world because it's basically saying the four giants are spirit friends of the Skull Kid who probably live in Lost Woods with him. And then there's this falling out. He robs a mask salesman, finds Majora's Mask, Majora's Mask creates this world based on the Skull Kid's turmoil that the Hero of Time wanders into. And then the events of Majora's Mask happen, Link breaks the curse, leaves, goes back to Hyrule, and then Termina ceases to exist as the power of Majora fades and the Skull Kid resolves his internal conflict and they all go on to live in Lost Woods and Termina's gone. Yeah, that's crazy. The funny thing is, is that actually totally works into one of my favorite Majora's Mask theories that we'll get into later. So Link isn't dead. Ha! (laughs) Yeah, that is true. It doesn't really lend itself to that theory, but it makes it tricky for some of these theories we'll talk about where Termina might be a alternate reality, sort of like the Twilight Realm. And to me, this is still just a theory. I'm not taking it as ground truth and the reason for that is because Zelda Encyclopedia does have a couple of inconsistencies and people have noted that since it came out but one of the most obvious ones right on this page here is that in that Mind of the Skull Kid paragraph at the bottom it says that the Skull Kid like Link once lived in Hyrule and he claims he learned songs from someone resembling Soraya of the Kokiri Forest and this is kind of weird because at the end of Majora's Mask he acknowledges that Link reminds him of his friend from the forest. And we take that to mean Link himself, you know, like, cause Link actually did encounter the Skull Kid during the Trader Link sequence. And he not only teaches Skull Kid Soraya's song, but he also gives him a skull mask. And so we take it to mean that Link is actually the friend that the Skull Kid's referring to at the end of Majora's Mask. So it's weird that they mention Soraya and not Link. It is weird. And then another small thing is back on the timeline page of Link. So the timeline of Link through all the games. It says that the hero of time after dying, he becomes the hero's spirit. So it's like a typo. It's not the hero's shade. They call it the hero's spirit. 
And then there's one small difference in the timeline that I've heard people talk about before, the fact that Link's Awakening and the Oracle games are swapped in the timeline as if Nintendo made a correction. So. Interesting. There, It's minor things, but it, it was interesting. I've read this page because Encyclopedia only gives you like four pages on Termina and the whole book. So I've looked over them several times and just totally missed those details until one time I was reading through and I was like, Oh, what would that say? The world Hold was it. created by Majora's Mask. Is Zelda Encyclopedia like considered canon or? Yeah, it's like Hyrule nice. Historia. Okay. But it's not like the devs, the developers are the ones writing it. So, but it's so. also, that's how I feel about the defeated timeline. In my mind, it doesn't exist. Link never loses. If you and play like <laughs> me, Link loses. No, that's not true. I don't. I, <laughs> I'm not usually forward enough to die. I usually take a lot of precautions. <laughs> I also think that this idea of Termina is this temporary world that was created could also still interact with Hyrule. Like you could make the lore work as far as how people can actually travel to and from Termina for the time that it exists. So anyway, yeah, yeah this next theory is a, a super fun one, which assumes that there's interaction between Termina and Hyrule. First, we'll kind of step back and jump into a popular theory about Stone Tower Temple, which is that it's similar to the Tower of Babel. So if you don't know what the Tower of Babel is, it's a biblical story. It happens in the Old Testament, and it talks about a people who tried to build a tower to get to heaven. And it's implied in the Bible that they're trying to get there in defiance of God's power, that they want to show that they can get to heaven on their own. They don't need God's help. They don't need God's power. So as retribution for the people building the Tower of Babel, he confounds their languages, makes it so they can't understand each other, and then scatters them across the world. So people have kind of connected the Tower of Babel to the Stone Tower Temple and said that they feel like the Stone Tower Temple was a similar kind of story. And a lot of the reason is that the symbology of the Stone Tower Temple itself is seemingly derogatory, pointed at the heavens, meant mm. to be a defaming deity. So it seems like this tower was built in defiance by some sort of evil tribe, you know, with evil intent, malicious intent. And so this is a pretty popular theory. I first heard it from Vortexy Gamer, um, who was another YouTube creator. But this is a theory that's never been confirmed or denied. It's just another popular theory that's been floating around. So the theory is that the gods of Termina, in order to punish the people of Icona or whoever built the tower, they made it so that the tower flipped. So that rather than going to heaven, the tower was now going to hell. And that's why you use heavenly power at the light arrow to flip the temple upside down. And then it's pointing to hell. So that's a really popular theory about Stone Tower Temple. And... I ascribed to this theory until Tanner sent me this video with an even cooler theory. Yeah, this video is done by Monster Maze in collaboration with Nintendo Black Crisis, and it's about the Icona kingdom in general. And so it's called Icona, A War Between Dimensions. And the first point that they make is that Stone Tower Temple was not constructed by the Icona kingdom. And the grounds for that is mostly architectural differences, the actual design of the two places. Stone Tower Temple is huge, and the symbology is very defiant. It defames deity and denounces higher power. And it's also different from Icona, which Icona is very geometric and colorful. Stone Tower is beige and muted colors, muted oranges and browns and stuff. 
very earthy colors, you could say. So the architectural differences is one thing. And then the other point is that Stone Tower Temple was sealed and no one could get into it for untold eras. And once the doors were thrust open, the kingdom of Icona was cursed and caused the spirits to linger after their death. So it seems odd that Iconic Kingdom would have built this tower that would have ended up being their destruction. It seems strange that they would self-deprecate their civilization like that in building this tower. So the idea is that Stone Tower was constructed by someone completely different long before Iconic Kingdom was ever established. And the way the theory goes here is that these people who built the Stone Tower Temple and the tower itself actually intended for the temple to flip upside down. So one thing that they point out as evidence for this theory is the room where you fight the Garrow Master. The first time that you go through the temple when it's right side up, you get to the end of the maze and you fight the Garrow Master in this room with a big hole in the ceiling. And the Garrow Master actually comes through that hole in the ceiling and then you fight him. So then you go, you get the light arrows, you go back out, you flip the temple. And when you make it to that room again, that's actually the room where you go through the portal to fight the boss. So when you go through this portal, you come into this totally different realm. It's like a desert area. There's some ruins off in the background. And so most people assume this area is just another spirit realm because there's a couple other times in Majora's Mask and in other Zelda games where you're transported to a whole different realm. Like in Majora's Mask, every time you go and talk to a giant, you're transported to somewhere that in the game's code is called Giant's Realm. And we assume it's just some spirit realm where the giants live and they talk to you and then you leave. But then Monster Maze and Nintendo Black Crisis point out that the place where you fight Twin Mold is pretty different from any other spirit realm areas that you visit in any of the other games. Because in the Giant's Realm, there's a lot of clouds, it's very foggy, you can't see the horizon. But in Twin Mold's fighting area, you can see towers off in the distance. It actually looks like you're in a land, there's a blue sky. So they theorize that the boss battle, instead of taking place in the spirit realm, actually does just take place in a different land. And they theorize that that dimension is Hyrule. Because Zelda Encyclopedia has a caption on that page I was reading. It's the picture of the Skull Kid, or the Imp as they call him, watching his four friends, the Giants, depart and leave him. And the caption says that it can be theorized that the Giants of the Four Worlds truly exist, that the Imp is a Skull Kid and the Heavens are Hyrule. And Monster Maze and Nintendo Black Crisis quote that same line, from Encyclopedia to say that the heavens are Hyrule. And so this idea that the civilization is building this tower in defiance of deity or in defiance of the heavens could still be valid. They are building a tower to try and reach the heavens, but the heavens to them is Hyrule. They're trying to reach this golden land where the Triforce is kept and the land is beautiful and prosperous. And this theory has some more evidence to back it up that they bring up. One of those is the fact that Link actually enters Termina underground. Majora's Mask, he steals the ocarina, he steals Epona, they chase each other through the Lost Woods, and then all of a sudden Link falls through this tree hole, like Alice in Wonderland, falls very deep underground, and encounters the Skull Kid again, he's turned to a Deku Scrub, and then as he actually enters Termina, he has this forest temple hallway effect where he's walking, it twists around, and all of a sudden he enters Termina upside down. So he's upside down, deep underground, and the theory takes that idea and says, okay, so this civilization, they had a different approach. They built a tower that's very, very, very tall and learned how to flip it upside down. So that it was pointing to the center of the world 
upside down. And through that, they're able to create a portal that actually connected them to Hyrule. So going along with that, the theory with the war that Akana was involved in with the Garo tribe, the theory is that the Garo came from Hyrule, that they were actually inhabitants of the desert, that Twinmold's lair is the Garo's old civilization, their home, and that this would have been some part of the desert in Hyrule, or very close to Hyrule. And that the Garo entered through the portal, and that might be how the Garo Master ended up at the top of the tower, and they spied on Ikana, and there was war, and maybe even the Garo were the ones who thrust open the doors and caused the curse to come in and tear down the kingdom of Ikana. Yeah, so it's kind of cool that this theory sheds a little bit more light on the battle between Ikana and the Garo, since that's another really ambiguous thing that's kind of mentioned in Majora's Mask, but we're not given a whole lot of information on. And then they mention one last piece of evidence that they say proves this theory, which is that the Triforce is inscribed on the bottom of the blocks that lead to Stone Tower. When you're climbing Stone Tower and you move all those blocks, those same blocks when you flip the tower now have Triforces inscribed on them facing up. Yeah, and there's um, the Triforces on those pillars too in Termina Field when you're walking right. to Icona. Right, yeah. And that's really important because the developers, when they made Majora's Mask, were very careful to take the Triforce out of anything in Termina. So like any assets that they reused from Ocarina of Time that had the Triforce on them. So like the soldiers had Triforces on their breastplates in Ocarina of Time. They were really careful to take those out from Majora's Mask. So the only place where you see the Triforce is those pillars leading into Ikana, some gold bars in Seikon's hideout, which is in Ikana. And then the blocks going to Stone Tower Temple, which is in Icona. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, too, because those were original textures. So they were really careful, right. like you said, to take them out of existing assets from Ocarina of Time. But then they added them into these original textures in Icona Valley. So it's like, hmm, interesting. Why would they do that? Yeah. Now, no, that's oh, only snap. in the 64 version. When Grezzo actually reanimated the 3D version, they took those out. So it's only in the N64 version, yeah. but still. Well, I, th I think that's only true of the blocks leading to Stone Tower. I think they are still on the pillars. Oh, really? And they are still on the gold bars. Ah, interesting. I think. Pretty sure. Or they weren't on the gold bars in the 64 version, and they are in the 3DS version. Something like that. I don't remember. Watch the video. Yeah, but it's super interesting. I love Stone Tower Temple. It's one of the most fascinating temples because you can see it from everywhere. I mean, this tower must have been massive, like huge. Yeah. And all it was was this tower to try and reach the heavens by this sacrilegious tribe trying to denounce deity. And then at the top, the tower is super interesting. And then you had the music. So it's a cool temple, and I love this idea that there's this interdimensional lore built around it. And then, of course, you tack on the intrigue between the Garo tribe and the Akana kingdom. Really cool stuff. So it's a great video. I recommend everybody go watch it because the research is pretty sound. It's, it's a good foundation that they've built on. Uh, some things they don't cover that I like to think about too is this idea I've heard around the internet that Stone Tower Temple was also the housing place of Majora's Mask itself. That it was actually the ancient tribe who created the mask, built the tower, created the mask, and then we're like, okay, this mask is way too powerful. So they sealed it in the Stone Tower Temple. And whoever thrust open the doors was the same person who actually got the mask and started the events of Majora's Mask. Could have been the happy mask salesman, 
could have been the Skull Kid. But those are other theories revolving around Stone Tower Temple that I like. Not covered in this video, not even necessarily theories that we buy into based on what we'll talk about next, but just cool stuff around this really mysterious, really unique dungeon in Majora's Mask. So the next one that we want to go over is my personal favorite Majora's Mask theory. I came across this one a couple of years ago while I was just, I would listen to the theories while I was at work and I came across this one and it is in my opinion, just an incredibly well thought out theory. There's a lot to it. I love it. I hope you all love it as well. I mean, we're not going to go into the crazy details of it, so you definitely need to watch it. But the stuff we pull out of it, just know it's very well backed. So we're pulling from the video Majora's True Identity by the YouTube creator Razanak, which is just, I don't know what the name means, but I like it. So like Tanner said, please go and watch it. He explains everything so much better than we could and it's a great theory. But kind of to give a little bit of background on the popular theories around Majora's Mask, one really popular theory that I've heard a lot is that the mask was created by the same interlopers from Twilight Princess that became the Twilight. Twily? I call them the Twilight, but that's just me. I don't know what I call them. Twilight, sure. Twilly. The Twilly. The Twilly. My boy's the Twilly. Anyway, them. And a couple of the reasons behind this theory is one, a lot of people say that the eyes of the fused shadow match the eyes of Majora's Mask, which is true. They have generally the same shape and look. And also people say similar to the fused shadow, Majora's Mask contains a lot of power and was said in the game to be created by a dark tribe. A lot of people say this also makes sense because Twilight Princess and Majora's Mask happen in the same timeline. So it makes sense that they would have mm -hmm. some of the same artifacts. Right, and in addition to that, the form that Majora's Wrath takes on, that same Broke. shape is actually pretty similar to Midna's shape that she takes on mm -hmm. when she takes on the Complete Fuse Shadow. But they're very similar in how they actually take shape. So they're, def they're definitely similar, but there are definitely some criticisms of the theory. The biggest one being that the only thing between the two masks, the Fused Shadow and Majora's Mask, the only thing that is similar between those two are the eyes. Everything else is completely different. Like Majora's Mask, the way that it's designed, the colors, everything is completely different from anything that the Twilight create. Because the Twilight architecture tends to be blocky and very geometric and really muted tones, typically grays, blacks, and dark greens. Majora's Mask, on the other hand, has a lot of very curved designs. It's got really bright colors. It's got the spikes. It's heart-shaped. So in general... It doesn't look like anything that the Twilight would have created. However, one thing that I do like about this theory is the theory that Majora's Mask wasn't created in Termina, it was created in Hyrule. And this is what Razanek in his video proposes is the case for Majora's Mask. And I think having talked about the idea that Termina may not have been an existing place at the time the mask was created, this gives a little more credibility to that kind of a theory. That Majora's Mask was a Hylian artifact, mm -hmm. and perhaps it was wielded by the Twilight. That could be, may, they could be an ancient tribe who tried to use it, realized that it was just too powerful, and so they abandoned it and made the few shadows. I kind of buy into that sort of theory, but... Mm -hmm. And I definitely like that idea that the Twilight could have found Majora's Mask and built the few shadow based on it, which might be why they have similar eyes. And this actually works really well with the theory that the video proposes, 
which is that the Sheikah created the Majora's Mask. And some people have said that the interlopers were the Sheikah or they were Dark Sheikah. So the theory is not super different for now. Yeah, there could definitely be some connection there because having offshoot magic wielders of the Sheikah tribe isn't unheard of in Zelda. I mean, think of the Yiga clan and Breath of the Wild. The interlopers could have been another example of that where they might have been members of the Sheikah tribe who broke off. And and so I like this theory by Razanak 7 because it's saying, okay, the Sheikah could have been the people who made the mask. And then you could think, okay, so maybe down the road there were these interlopers who were Sheikah, at least to begin with, And so they could have been influenced by the design of Majora's Mask, but then they had their own designs because, again, the design of the Twilight people is just completely different from the style of Majora's Mask. So maybe the interlopers were inspired by previous work done by their mother tribe. So then this raises the question, why would the Sheikah, who are supposed to be good and they're supposed to support and fight for the royal family why would they create something that is so evil and does so much harm if they're good but i mean i don't really think this theory is that out there because we know that the sheikah have a history of questionable deeds like all you have to do is look at the shadow temple which we know had to have been created in some capacity by the sheikah because they're they're symbols on it right so it's not crazy to think that the sheikah would do something questionable in the name of doing something right. And Razanak, in his video, uses the quote, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So the Sheikah have done really questionable things in the past in the name of protecting Hyrule. So I don't think it's unheard of that they would create this mask thinking that they could use it for good or thinking that they could trap an incredibly powerful spirit that would have done harm to Hyrule if they hadn't trapped it which leads into the theory of who the spirit trapped in Majora's Mask is. Now, disclaimer, if you have not seen Razanak's video, we've got it linked in the show notes or the description below. This would be the time where we say, go watch that if you don't want us to reveal it, because the way that he reveals it, I promise, is way better than how we're about to reveal it. So if you want to build up the suspense and then have the plot twist revealed to you by the original author, Go watch that video right now. And you've lost your chance. So he says that the spirit imprisoned in the mask is Girahim. It's so cool. That's right. Girahim, deranged servant of the demon emperor Demise himself. Outcast, banished in the final battle between Link and Demise. Lost, dissolved into the ether, wandering and wondering what could have possibly gone wrong. So that's kind of a lot to take in. Like Tanner was saying, Girahim was banished. We don't really know what happens to him, but we can't really assume he was destroyed because we just see the sword dissolve and then kind of float away. Yeah, which we see the same thing happen to Demise too, only Link was able to trap Demise into the Master Sword and seal his spirit away. So he actually captured that, but Girahim is lost into the cosmos. So, the theory is that after Link and Zelda go back to Skyloft or they go on their adventures around Hyrule, Impa remains back in time, young Impa remains, and she finds the spirit of Girahim and traps him in a mask to make sure that he can never escape again and to make sure that he'll never free the spirit of Demise again. 
And one point that I think is really cool about this theory is that we see throughout the game that Girahim's one and only purpose is to bring Demise back. That is his purpose in life. That's all he wants to do. And then all of a sudden, Demise is gone, Girahim is aimlessly floating around, and his one purpose in life is no longer there. Demise is trapped in a sword, and the people whose fault it was that his one true purpose in life is gone ran away. Which is cool, because when you're up in the moon and you go and talk to the final moon child, he says, let's go play a game of good guys and bad guys. And he says, he'll be the good guy and you'll be the bad guy. And all you'll do is run because that's what bad guys do, which fits so perfectly because Girahim, knowing that he's kind of deranged as it is, probably sees himself as a victim in this situation. And in his eyes, the bad guys, Link and Zelda, just ran away. They didn't even try to deal with him. They didn't come and face him. They ran away to their own time. And so it's not crazy to think that Girahim holds on to these feelings and this anger for thousands of years until he finally gets the power to create Termina and become the bad guy of Majora's Mask. Yeah, that bitterness would drive anybody crazy, especially after Impa, the only one who's left behind, just ends up tethering him to a wooden mask. And it also gives credence to this idea that Termina could be this pocket dimension that's temporarily created as kind of like a battle plane, because Girahim fundamentally was Demise's sword, and you could think of him as like a housing for Demise's power. And I speculate this because this is a mechanic that's been seen in Zelda before. In Twilight Princess, Ganondorf is cast away into the Twilight Realm and he becomes a giant head ball of fire. And he finds this Twilight outcast Zant who's looking for a god that can help him usurp the kingdom. And so Ganondorf houses all of his power into Zant which lets Zant actually escape the Twilight Realm start to take over Hyrule. So it's kind of like a horcrux. You think, you know, you're containing your soul in an object, or even like the wands themselves from Harry Potter, you're housing your magic in an object. Ganondorf houses his powers in Zant, and I speculate that Demise did the exact same thing with Girahim. So that means Girahim is the housing or the physical manifestation of Demise's power. Now, I don't think he could do really what Demise can do with that power because he doesn't have the will or he doesn't have the purpose, but he has that power, that potential. And so since Demise can obviously create these little parallel universes, considering the battlefield that he creates for him and Link, it's not out of the question to think that Girahim can do this himself. And so when the Skull Kid puts on the mask, combines his inner turmoil with Girahim or Demise's power, it does just create this parallel dimension, this battle plane with its own geography, its own lore, its history, and Link, the Hero of Time, is able to portal into that, just like Link from Skyward Sword did when he went and fought Demise. So I think this aligns pretty well with what Zelda Encyclopedia says about Termina, and with the power that Girahim likely possesses. So now that we've established who's in the mask, what about what happened in the thousands of years between Skyward Sword and Ocarina of Time? So when Impa first imprisons Girahim's spirit in the mask, we can assume that the mask did what it was supposed to do and kept his power contained. But after thousands of years of being trapped in the spirit, Girahim's power probably started to kind of spill out, and he probably started to find ways to use his power to escape the mask. So after thousands of years of being trapped, the Sheikah started to realize that this mask was incredibly dangerous and that it might not be able to contain Girahim forever. 
So they needed to find a place where they could store the mask, where it wouldn't hurt the people of Hyrule, but where it would keep Sp- Girahim's spirit contained. In the video, Razanek implies that this housing place for the mask was probably Shadow Temple, but going back to our stone tower theory, I think it makes sense that the Sheikah could have found the portal to Termina from Hyrule and stored it in the stone tower temple. Either theory honestly works, but it's important that the mask was stored somewhere that was accessible from Hyrule because then that explains the possible identity of the happy mask salesman. Some of the interesting facts that Razanak actually did go into about happy mask salesman is the fact that he sets up this shop in Ocarina of Time to express his passion for masks and help other people find happiness and joy through masks. But remember, all of this happens on the child timeline before any of the major events of Ocarina of Time would have happened. So Link would have completed the first dungeon and approached Zelda, and then they would have taken care of Ganondorf and given that span of time, the Happy Mask Salesman would have only had a shop open for maybe a handful of days, maybe a couple of in-game months, and then all of a sudden he shows up in Lost Woods with Majora's Mask in a full pack, wandering away from Hyrule. So it's a little interesting to think, okay, he opens this shop, this is his passion, but it's only open for a few months, and then he just takes off, and all of a sudden he's got this super powerful evil mask. Like, what's the deal there? So his theory is that the Happy Mask Salesman came to Hyrule with the express intent of finding Majora's Mask. So if the mask was stored in the Shadow Temple, then it makes sense that the Happy Mask Salesman would have gone into the Shadow Temple to find it when Impa was away at the trial for Ganondorf. Because remember, this is happening in the child timeline. So Link warns the royal family about Ganondorf. He goes on trial. So... He theorizes that while Impa is away at this trial for Ganondorf, the mask salesman sneaks into the Shadow Temple, gets the mask, and then flees to Termina. So it seems like the happy mask salesman's in a hurry to get out of Hyrule quickly. He goes into the Lost Woods where he knows that nobody will follow him. Question is, where is he going and why does he have the mask? So Hyrule Gamer actually goes into who the mask salesman could be. And I'm going to pull a couple things from his video. But he proposed this idea that the Happy Mask Salesman is not a human per se, that he's more of a deity or a demigod. Similar to what we consider Hylia, she's like that second degree goddess where she is a servant of the great goddesses. So Happy Mask Salesman could have been one of these servants sent by the goddesses, almost like Impa herself. Impa was sent by the goddess Hylia to protect Zelda, who is the reincarnation of Hylia. And so, by extension, the Sheikah tribe were sent to protect the royal family and the Triforce. In that duty, Impa likely bound up Girahim's spirit to the mask in order to keep Girahim from reviving darkness. But it had a backwards effect in that now you have this crazy powerful mask that somebody could wield that could almost rival the power of the Triforce itself. So perhaps the goddesses actually sent another servant to go retrieve the mask, remove it from Hyrule, and find a way to destroy the power within it. There's a little bit of evidence to this too at the end of Majora's Mask when you beat the game and you approach the dawn of a new day, you see the happy mask salesman holding the lifeless mask and he says, oh, so the evil has left the mask after all. And you could either take that to be wistful, as if the happy mask salesman is kind of sad that the evil is gone. Bummed out. Yeah, or it could be a sigh of relief. 
almost like a surprise as if to say, oh, so the evil has truly left this mask. My job is done. Because after this scene, he just disappears. He's gone. Like legit disappears. Like not into the forest. Like he just put vanishes. As if to say his job was complete and he could pass on to whatever was next for this demigod. So That's super cool. I didn't yeah. know. I had never thought about that. And that's why he looks like... Who did, they, did they model him after uh, Shigeru Miyamoto? Yeah, he looks a little bit like Shigeru Miyamoto, yeah. <laughs> so tells you how important Shigeru is to them. He's basically sent. a minor god. Yep, he was sent by God himself. <laughs> oh <my> God. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. If you've ever wondered who Majora is or who the Happy Mask Salesman is, now you know. Or you know some some options. So that's what we have for you guys today. We hope you enjoyed listening to some popular theories and some of our favorite theories. And we hope that just from what you've learned here today that you can start coming up with your own ideas about Majora's Mask and you can start building up your own idea of how the story goes and if Termina is real or not. And like we've said before and like we'll probably keep saying in the future, that's the beauty of Zelda games is that we do have things like the Zelda Encyclopedia and Hyrule Historia that shed some light on each of the games. But at the end of the day, you can interpret them however you want to interpret them and you can decide what theories you like and don't like. Absolutely. And that's the beauty of lore and speculation is that we're never going to get the full picture. So we've got to keep collecting the pieces and putting them together. So help us out with that. Shoot us a message on Instagram or Twitter. Comment on this video on YouTube. Send us an email. Fax us. Page. However you want to get in touch with us. Send a raven with a little scroll (laughs) attached. We're flexible. Anything that you find, any cool theories that you love and want to share, we want to hear about it. And maybe we'll even talk about it and feature it. But the videos that we did talk about are linked in the description and the show notes if you're listening. So take a look at those. They're awesome. These people have done a lot of work in digging up these facts and details from the games. So give them a look. And that's it for us on our second lore cast, exploring the most intriguing game of the Zelda series, Faux Show. So if you're looking to play the game, you can play it on Nintendo Switch Online. It's available on 3DS, or you can get the original 64 copy if you have a 64. So there's a few places to play it. So go out there, explore the land of Termina, return to Hyrule in peace, and remember that it's dangerous to go alone, so take us. Thanks guys, see you next week. <laughs>